I really think we're we're going to be done with downloading data I, I, for a couple of reasons. I think the data sets are going to be enormous, like terabytes, petabytes, huge, huge data sets. It's not going to make sense to pull that down over over even your 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 best gigabit Ethernet pipe. So everything is going to be an API layer. Everything is likely going to be sitting with major cloud providers. And you could have a, a whole other discussion on how you feel about centralization of the cloud providers. That's sort of like beyond the topic of this conversation, but I, th I think that's where we're headed, at least from what I can see. Welcome back to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. That voice you heard just before, that was Jeff Ciardo. And Jeff is the director of user experience at a company called Element 84. A couple of things I think you should know about this podcast episode before we get started. Firstly, it's about design and it's about user experience. So these are things we don't often talk about in the geospatial community, but I think they're really important. You'll find during the conversation that Jeff keeps coming back to Earth observation and, and data science in general when he's talking about design examples. But I, I think even if you're not directly involved in those industries, I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Secondly, I want to let you know that this episode was created in paid partnership with Element84. So that's the company that Jeff works for. So what, so what does paid partnership mean? Well, before we get to that, we need to go back in time a little bit. For the last three years, I've been creating this podcast pretty much on a weekly basis. But I've, I've reached a point where I can no longer continue doing it without help. I, I, can't, I simply can't do it by myself anymore. So I need to build some kind of sustainability around this podcast. So I've, I've launched a Patreon account. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. I have asked certain companies to to consider sponsoring the website and i'm actively looking for sponsors for this podcast so that sounds like a lot of sponsorship it sounds like a lot of ads and my, my guess is that you didn't start listening to this podcast to be overwhelmed with ads and part of the promise of the mapscaping podcast is that i'll show up each week with something that i think might help you not something that is simply a vehicle for advertisers so there must be another way so when i reached out to element 84 and asked if they would be interested in coming along and helping us understand more about design when we think about geospatial. I also asked if they would consider helping cover the cost of producing this episode, and they were generous enough to say yes. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Hi Jeff, welcome to the podcast. So you are the director of user experience at a company called Element84, and you've got this amazingly rich background in design, and now you're working in geospatial. So. For the sake of context, could you just take a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds to introduce yourself to the audience, perhaps explain to us how you got involved with design and your, your background in it and, and how that led you to work with it with a geospatial company? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, I'm Jeff Ciardo. I'm the, the director of UX at Element84. Uh, and 84 is uh, sort of like a small software engineering company that specializes in geospatial or science systems. Got here through sort of a roundabout way. My sort of educational background is not in geospatial or earth science. I studied sort of a, a general design and user experience background in college. And after that, I did basically freelance web design for a while. During that time, I wrote a couple of books for O'Reilly in their Head First series. And in that time, um, that's sort of where I, I met Dan and Tracy Pallone, who, who run Element 84, they were also co-authors in that same series. And so I, I was able to get to know them early on in my career. Before I came to E84, though, I started a, uh, a small sort of social media analytics company, 
which I ran for about five or six years. And we did sort of like early social media analytics for consumer product brands. So I worked with companies like Wrigley and New Balance and Radio Flyer. Uh, and we essentially monitored their social media traffic and then helped their marketing teams kind of like figure out messaging and how to engage on sort of early social media channels. And so that was sort of my initial background. And I, I worked on the software there and I worked on the design of those, those projects. And then after I was done with that, Element 84 reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in working on this NASA project and if I had anything going on. And I said, oh, I don't actually have anything going on right now. That sounds really interesting. Uh, and that's sort of, sort of how I got here. So I, I came onto that project knowing very little about remote sensing and earth observation, but bringing my design background sort of to bear on their problems. Um, they had never actually worked with any designers before. And so um, I was kind of new to them as well. And I sort of just learned as I went, as we worked through some of their early projects over there. So we're going to talk a lot more about design and earth observation in, in just a second here. But I'm curious, when you think back to when you started at Element 84, I think you said that they'd never worked with a designer before. What was it like for you coming in? I mean, were they doing the right things? Were they, because uh, I, I guess a, a lot of the semantics around earth observation was new to you. But when you looked at the products that they were making, the things that they were doing, you know, was it all brand new or could you see a lot of the, the sort of design elements that you were used to working with or is it something totally different? They were getting there. So I, I was actually the first designer at Element 84. And then I was also sort of the first designer to come onto this NASA program. And so they had some foundational pieces there. They had great backend systems. Uh, they were sort of working in the right direction. And I was able to come in and sort of help them improve the interface or get their interfaces to the point where they were sort of in in the same league as some of the backend systems that they had. And they were kind of getting to that point where they had solved a lot of the early problems, but now more of those user experience problems were starting to surface. And that kind of ended up being a trend throughout my career here is once those early problems get solved, those user experience problems sort of creep up and become the sort of major players. So now that you've been working in the industry for a while, when you think about earth observation and design, do you think a lot of the companies that are doing similar work to what you're doing are, fi are facing the same problems? I mean, does it surprise you in any way that we haven't been thinking about design earlier? I don't know if it necessarily surprises me. And, and, I, and I do think that, we, that more companies are starting to look at that. Like, like I said, as we start to solve those kind of middleware early problems, the sort of piping, the user interface problems start to start to creep up. And so I don't necessarily think that it's surprising. You know, if you look at, you know, if, if you step back and sort of look at the timeline of the of the, the early internet, and sort of where all of that went, design sort of became more important as the web sort of matured. And a lot of people sort of moved from that graphic design discipline onto the web. And they sort of brought those skill sets to bear in an area that was highly technical before it was a, a design medium. And I, I think we're seeing that in geospatial, particularly as the tooling gets more web-based, cloud-based, um, where you're interacting with these applications and APIs through the internet, you're going to encounter more user interfaces. And I think the importance of those user interfaces to making the job of whoever that end user is, is easier uh, becomes more important. 
So maybe we should try and frame the conversation a little bit for the listeners now. So in one of your tweets, I saw this great sort of catchphrase, and it was reducing the time to science. So I guess my, my first question is, how is design going to reduce the time to science? Because I think design could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on what it is that we're working on. So if we think about the geospatial stack, we, we could divide it up. So if we divide it up broadly, we can talk about the back end and the front end. And I'd like to start with the back end. You've been talking about it as pipes and infrastructure uh, up until this point. How do we bring design to bear on that? Like what, what bits can you come in and design to make it better? Time to science is, is super important. So this is just to define it a little bit. This is the amount of time that a particular scientist or researcher will spend getting to the answer of the question they initially, uh, you know, they initially posed. And in the past, scientists have spent 50, 60% of their time sort of doing data wrangling or data processing, getting all of the bits together so that they can answer the question. And so I think the first part of that in reducing time to science, if you're talking about the back end, it's, it's sort of smoothing out that back end process. So maybe that's going from having to deal with, you know, level zero data or level one data up to a more refined data product that is maybe properly subsetted or properly reprojected. And so taking care of that for the scientists. Okay, so now they don't have to do all of that sort of specialty work on the data and, and they, that gets them one step closer. And then if you sort of continue on with that, particularly as we move into sort of like a cloud data paradigm, maybe we go even further, maybe we take it and we put these data products into a format that can be easily visualized or easily manipulated in a way that does not require programming. So we've sort of eliminated some of the lower level tasks from the, you know, from the workflow. And then we, we sort of shorten that time to science. So now maybe they only have to spend 30% of their time sort of getting the data in the right place. And honestly, if you go back even further, some of that 60% of data wrangling time was just literally waiting for data to download. I would hear stories when I first started, we would sort of go out and talk to scientists and we'd watch them work on their projects. We'd look at their workflow and see how they interact with the data. And oftentimes they'd sort of just like have to set up a download and just sort of let it go and then come back a couple of days later when all their files were, were downloaded. And so some of that time to science was just literally kind of sitting around and, and waiting. And so even just improving how you interact with the data and just generally improving like the, the speed of internet that people have access to on their desktops has made that better. And I look at all of that as that's all user experience as well. The, the speed of the internet access, the way in which they have to get the data onto their machine and what formats that data is in, they all are related to the overall user experience. So when I think about the, the back end, so apart from the data manipulation to get it to that sort of analysis ready state, I guess we could call it, I think about infrastructure like blob storage on the cloud. And I think about infrastructure like cloud optimized geotiffs, other cloud optimized data formats. So we can stream data directly to a client without having to run a database somewhere in the background. And I think about things like the, the stack interface, for example. And it seems to me that these pieces are sort of slowly coming together and that at some stage, they're going to be a commodity. It's going to be, of course, you're running with, with these types of standard components. And I'm wondering how you see that and think about that 
in terms of being a commodity? Do you, do you think it is at the moment? Are, are we there yet where it's just, of course, you're using these things. What, what else would you be using? Yeah, I, I think we're moving in that direction. I would not say we're, we're quite at a commodity yet, but I think we're getting there. And I, I think you can tell that we're getting there in a couple of different ways. A, you're starting to see the, the sort of the major cloud players building these systems up. So I'm, I'm speaking specifically of like the AWS public data sets and the Microsoft planetary computer. So, so you have these sort of big cloud players that are kind of investing in these open geospatial systems. And so they're sort of building this backend, this foundational layer of data products and APIs that then can be built on top of in sort of a standardized way. And so we're moving in that direction. I think we're in the sort of building stage for that layer. And I would say, I don't really know where we are in that building stage, maybe maybe halfway through. I think in the decade-ish that I've been working in this, over the last three to four years, you've really seen uh, an uptick in the, the sort of cloud data adoption and seeing investment in those platforms that are going to, these will become a commodity in the short term, but I don't think we're quite there yet. I still think we're in the building phase. Okay, but it sounds like you, you're you thinking in perhaps the same sort of lines as I am, where I'm thinking that this will be a commodity at some stage, if not right now, then, then at some stage. And so, so when I think about Earth observation, and I think about software companies that are looking to sort of build a business around it, I think it's going to be pretty hard for them to create the data themselves. So there's going to be other satellite uh, platforms which are going to create this data, it's going to come down to Earth, it's going to go through this, not now, but in some time in the future, a commoditized system, and it's going to end up in the front end. So I think about the place where a lot of value could be created will be in the front end. Do you think that I'm on the right track there? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the the issue that we're we're facing right now is that obviously the, the Earth observation and, and geospatial data is fairly complex to use, and so now we're taking a, a step in the right direction by you know moving that to the cloud and creating sort of standardized systems on top of that. So now we've sort of eliminated that that initial barrier. And then once we have that, now the companies and the startups and the government agencies that want to start spending more time answering specific questions, or you know, you could come back to the, the the time for science piece, or on the commercial side, you know, we we've got a, a commercial interest or a commercial issue that we want to answer a question about. Now you have the the foundational pieces in line to be able to answer those questions and focus on the taking the data that is in the standardized format and manipulating it in a way to to answer a specific question for a specific customer. And all you have to do is sort of focus on what that question is and how to sort of build or manipulate the system to answer it. But you no longer have to worry about like, okay, where am I going to get this data? What data set do I need to use? You won't even really need to worry about what the sensor is or what the platform is. You'll just sort of, you'll have the, the normalized data ready to go. And so I feel like that allows you to, to really focus on the, the customer problem. And I think a good example of, of this is like a, a company like Twilo, which is sort of like a communication and SMS voice API over a, a bunch of sort of lower level technologies. And so 
if I want to then build a product that utilizes some sort of SMS messaging or some sort of voice system, I don't have to then go interact with the SMS layer or figure out how I'm going to do voice over the internet. I can just build on top of Twilo's system and they've sort of standardized out that lower level tech for me. And I can focus on, you know, my, my AI chatbot or my, you know, my SMS messaging tool or something like that without having to worry about that slightly lower level. And I think that's, that's sort of where we're headed. And it just frees you to think about the higher level problem as opposed to like where you're going to acquire the data and how you're going to get it into the right format. And like, what does it mean if I, if I don't do that properly? Just sort of, there's just less you have to worry about on that front. I agree with you. We're not quite here yet, but I hope that I'm pretty sure we're moving in that direction. And I'm pretty sure we're going to get there at, you know, within the next 10 years, I hope. When I think about the front-end opportunity, you're right. So, so we have these great platforms we can build on. I think about the brandability of a front-end, the way you can dress something up, you can change the look and feel of it, you can add an identity to it, and that can become a selling point in itself. But it doesn't feel like we in the geospatial industry are that interested in changing the way we do front-ends, changing the way we do designs. It seems to me that we're pretty committed to using the tools we've always used. Firstly, I'd like to know what you think about that statement. And then secondly, I'd like to say, do you see any opportunities to change things here? Any things that could be done differently? Yeah, I, first of all, I do agree. I do agree with that. There's a, a pretty consistent set of tooling that's, that's been used forever. I think there's a lot of standardized patterns that we've seen used uh, quite frequently, and I'm I'm kind of talking about like uh you know a slippy map interface where you can drag around a map and you can create a bounding box and you can uh, sort of interact with like a a Google Maps style interface, which has become fairly ubiquitous and and honestly ubiquitous both on the the sort of geospatial Earth observation side, but then also the the consumer side as well. We're we're sort of familiar with that. However, I think that's still kind of like when you're looking from a geospatial perspective, when you're looking at a, a map with a bounding box and you know a sidebar of layers, you're still sort of thinking in this, I need to pull data from around this area, like give me all the stuff inside of my bounding box. And I, I, think, I think there's parts of that that are going to carry over, but I think that we're going to need to move into a direction where we are building interfaces that are answering specific questions as opposed to just building interfaces that are allowing me to grab a bunch of stuff inside of a bounding box. And there's always going to be that. You're, you're always going to have to, especially in, in geospatial and earth observation, you're always going to have to tell the system where on earth you want to get data from. But I'm not necessarily convinced that always has to be on a map. Uh, and I'm also not convinced after spending a many, many years watching folks interact with map products, particularly in the earth observation and earth science world, that that's really the best thing. I, I think people still struggle with it. I think they're still a little inconsistent and I, I think we could do better. And, and yes, these tools are ubiquitous, but they're still not, we still have not ironed out all the UX issues of the, the map-based interface, let alone, you know, moving into into a new paradigm. And, and I just, I'm not convinced that it's the right or it's the best interface once we get into that higher level 
what question do you want answered phase? Yeah, to me, it, every time I see a new data portal, it feels like it was, it, it's a total one size fits all. And there hasn't been, in a lot of cases anyway, too much thought that's gone into it. It's a map, it's the, you know, the, the panel on the left-hand side of the screen, it's all the usual things. And part of me thinks, ah, seeing standard products, like standard design, things that I know and have used before, it, it makes it easy for me. I don't have to learn something new. So, so I get that side of it. But it feels, I don't know, like a, I guess for me, it just feels like this one size fits all product and, and no one's really come along and thought like, can we do it differently? Is there something else? We even see Google Maps doing the same thing, right? It, it feels like that maybe it's not a technical problem. Maybe it's more of a cultural problem. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, I don't think it's a technical problem. And, and honestly, there's been great strides on the technical side of, I guess, like internet map making. And there, there's all sorts of great tooling to make getting the map in your browser easier and creating layers. All of that is easier. I, I certainly would rather be building map interfaces now than map interfaces a decade ago. Uh, we've, we've come very, very far in the developer experience. So how easy it is for a software engineer to, to put a map interface together. But I, I think that's where we've been iterating. We've been, we've been iterating on how can we make this map interface a little bit easier to use or a little bit easier to develop or easier to surface information on top of but I don't think we've ever really stopped and thought, you know, is a map really the right interface for this particular application? And so I think that's sort of where I see us going is, is maybe, maybe a map's not the best interface for this particular piece of software. And if not a map, then, you know, then what? I've often heard people get really excited about having an output they can put directly into a spreadsheet because that, that's what they used to work with. That's going to go directly into a database or talk nicely with other spreadsheets. They, they didn't actually want a, a visual output at all. I think that's true across, well, maybe not across the board, but I, I certainly think, and I fall into this trap all the time as a designer and not a, like my background is not in earth science. And so you're kind of always thinking, well, like, I mean, look, I can give you this picture of the, the land area, or I can give you, we always want to put things into a visualization. And Doing visualizations is an important part of this, but yeah, not all science users want their output in that format. Some, sometimes they want it output in code. Sometimes they want it output in a spreadsheet. The flexibility in that output is important. So maybe not assuming that your user wants it in any particular format, but making things sort of extensible in a way that they can pull it into whatever format they're most comfortable with, whether that's like a statistical programming language or, or like you said, a, just a, a standard spreadsheet. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with having that middle piece built out and matured, that lets us think about those interface problems. We can spend more mental energy and sort of man hours on those types of problems because we're not having to sort of sort through the, the lower level building blocks. Mapscaping used to be an e-commerce website. We ran on a, a platform called Shopify. Are you familiar with Shopify? Yes, absolutely. So Shopify showed up and made it incredibly easy for people like me to start an e-commerce website. There is an app environment, so you can just add the, these plugins, the, these apps to your Shopify store from a standardized box, you can quickly make a custom thing. And it's absolutely amazing. And it's interesting with e-commerce, their whole thing is to get someone into the shop and out of the shop as quickly as possible. 
if the checkout is more, it takes more than five seconds, you know, it's, it's too long. And there's this real focus on like, get the customer what they want as quickly as they can. I don't feel like we've, we've got there yet with, uh, with geospatial. I'm wondering if there's any lessons that you can see in e-commerce, perhaps from Shopify that we could take over to the products that, that we build in the geospatial world. Uh, yeah. So Shopify is a great example because they've done a, a handful of things uh, really, really well. Uh, one of the things that I love about Shopify is that they've they've sort of standardized the user experience patterns around the checkout experience. And so when you're checking out on a Shopify site, you sort of you know that it's a Shopify site. And a lot of people probably don't know it's a Shopify site, but they know that they've seen this pattern before. They know they've seen this particular way, you know, the credit card has to be entered into the form. They know that they expect when they start to type their address that it's a, a dropdown is going to appear and they're going to be able to select their address and it's going to autofill. And so they don't have to do all that. And so that experience is seamless and it's sort of expected. There's a the end user knows what they're going to get. And I think one of the, the problems I see with geospatial interfaces now is that you're not always sure what you're going to get. And my, my one example of this is the way that an area of interest selector or you know a bounding box selector on a map interface behaves. Sometimes you have to click and drag it. Sometimes you have to click and add points like a polygon. And then once you have the, the sort of area selected, the way in which you then perform actions on that selection are also different. And so I think there are ways that we can standardize that. And I think the group or company or people that figure out the best user experience there and can standardize it in a way that makes it kind of crazy to not use that. Like that's one thing that Shopify has done really well is it's sort of like you really have to convince someone to not use the Shopify platform for their store. And again, the, the, the people that are using Shopify, they're using it because they don't want to deal with the e-commerce aspect. They want to sell their t-shirts. They want to sell their eBooks. They want to sell their information products. And they don't want to have to A, you know, learn a new system to do that. And they don't want to put anything out there that is going to make it difficult for their customers to, to buy their product. And I think with geospatial interfaces, I think we need to move to that point. We, we, need, to make, we need to make it so that there's an obvious choice for some subset of these user interactions. And again, it's not going to be everything. There are certainly people who choose to roll their own e-commerce site for, for various reasons, and, and that's always going to exist. But I would love to see some of these patterns mature in geospatial user interfaces so that our science users and our municipal users that are trying to get you know, questions answered for their, for their county or their state don't have to wonder what they're going to get when they, when they go to, to try to pull data or to try to get an interface with a geospatial system to answer a question, that they know there's going to be some standard level of interaction there. And they can, again, they can move their focus one level up. They can move it at slightly higher and not have to worry about that. And so it's, it's a, there's two sides of it. It's great for the developers because they don't have to reinvent that wheel. They don't have to come up with a new way to do a bounding box or a new way to do a map interface. And on the customer side, they don't have to wonder like, oh my gosh, this is a new geospatial system. Like, 
like, what, what am I going to get here? Like, what is this going to be like? And I think right now there's still some of that. A lot of the science users that I talk to, they're certainly apprehensive about new systems because oftentimes it takes them a, a long time to become proficient in the one that they're already using. And they do not like to have a new system designed by, you know, these like new designers that just came in and I'm like totally putting myself into those shoes. I, at one point I was the new designer that came in and I was like, you guys are doing all this wrong. You need to do this and this and this. And that kind of freaks people out, uh, especially people whose entire career is based around doing this type of science work. And that data is very important to them, both to their career and whatever agency they're working for. And so there's a lot of uncomfortableness with that change. And I think some of that is growing pains and we've got to get through that. But I think once we've settled on something, we need to be more consistent with that type of, of interface. We, we want them to know what they're going to get. So you talked about Shopify and one of the beautiful things about it was the establishment of a standard set of patterns that we know what a checkout looks like. We understand there's you know, three steps, there's autofill forms, there's this, there's that. And then at the last bit, we, we push our credit card numbers and we get that. Do you think the lack of these standard patterns in, in geospatial speaks to how niche it still is? There's not as many designers working on specific geospatial problems. I, I think that's certainly changing. Like I, I think a lot of the new interfaces that we see coming out from a lot of the new commercial companies that are appearing, they're taking design a lot more seriously. But yeah, I, I think there just hasn't been a lot of people working on these problems. Now, there obviously has been like, you, know, you look at Google Maps or Apple Maps and, and Mapbox and, and these companies, like there have been great designers working on mapping problems for quite a while. I think on the earth science side specifically, I think that gets pretty niche, especially because of the sort of complex science that's going on there. I think the consumer side is a little more mature, but I'm not entirely convinced that the patterns developed on the consumer side necessarily fit the scientific model or maybe the the municipal GIS worker model. Like those are different people that need to navigate in a car or, you know, look at a uh, an aerial imagery of their house. That's a different user than someone who's trying to work out land use patterns or monitor sea surface temperature or, or things like that. It's they're they're different requirements. Yeah, but I think this gets back to the idea that it, it one size doesn't fit everyone. That we need specialized maps, special or specialized interfaces, depending on what problems we're trying to solve. I, I want to stay with the Shopify example just for a second here. So I remember with our store, we had this option to install a plugin. And that plugin was going to provide like a little mini recommendation engine. You know, people that like this also like that. I would really like to see some of this stuff come over into, into data portals to help us filter through the data. I think in, in the past, a big argument for having the map is, yeah, we can see the data. We, we, we can see what it looks like. We decide if that's the data we want. But also, it's an incredibly quick way of filtering a massive amount of data is visually. But I would love to see some sort of recommendation engines come into these portals to help us filter through it. I would like to see some voice interfaces built into these things. From a design perspective, can, can you see anything that's sort of stopping us from, from integrating some of these ideas? I don't think there's anything specifically stopping us from integrating these ideas. And I, I think we are moving towards some of that in, in some areas. We have this notion on the earth science side of usage-based discovery. So this is finding data sets based on 
what you're trying to do, like what is the end goal of the data set and sort of categorizing things that way. And so I think as the the metadata systems, that sort of middle piece that we're kind of in the middle of the building phase now, I think as that gets improved and we can expand the the metadata available for these data products, I think those alternate discovery mechanisms become easier to build. Part of the problem is that in order to build those those sort of higher level discovery systems is you have to you still have to have the information about the data. You still have to have the metadata about the products. And I think as we're building this middle piece out, those metadata are becoming more refined, more detailed. Again, because we're not dealing with the lower level problems, people have more time to refine and incorporate more specific metadata into these programs. And thus we can start to build I guess, smarter systems that, that sit on top of that data and allow us to have some sort of AI or machine learning make recommendations for data that we may not have thought about. Maybe we have an interface where there's, there isn't a map and you're just sort of asking the system a question based on a, a, a region of the globe. And then it can suggest other questions related to that, or it can say, hey, these other researchers have posed a similar question. Here are their results. And I, I think there's, there's a ton of space for those types of interfaces once we have the sort of data infrastructure there. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're certainly moving sort of exponentially faster than we have been. We're moving in that direction for sure. Is there anybody out there at the moment that's doing inspirational work in this space that you can point to and say, well, if you want some examples of great design, great interfaces, look over there? Uh, yeah, so a couple examples off the top of my head. Um, I think the folks at Up42 are doing some really great design work and user experience work, also from a product perspective, um, but they're sort of an example of the the higher level system that's sort of interfacing with a bunch of these other data providers and then providing an interface or a system on top of that to sort of streamline a workflow or get a faster answer to a question. So I really like what they're doing. I love uh, this little project called Placemark by Tom McWright. He's doing um, some really interesting user interface work in sort of like a niche space. Unfolded AI is another really great one. Their mapping and just general design interfaces are really, really good. Um, they're built up on top of Uber's H3 sort of geospatial library, which is like a hexagon-based geospatial library, which I, I really like. So I, I think, and again, you know, this is sort of being pulled out of the out of the consumer commercial side and adopted now into more of the sort of data analytics and and geospatial side of the house, but still really great stuff there. And then I think obviously like Mapbox, I, I'm sure everybody knows about Mapbox. They're doing really, really wonderful stuff. They have fantastic designers. Their 3D rendering, map rendering is, uh, is really amazing. But again, with Mapbox, like these are sort of importing consumer and commercial tech into, into the sort of data analytics and, and, and geospatial side. But those are all great examples of fantastic design and, and user experience. And so like, I'm excited because like all of these new companies that are cropping up, all of these new projects that are cropping up, they all look great. Like they're all 
seeing design as a first class citizen. And I think like we can just continue to build on on that momentum and raise that bar a little bit. And then those expectations for where design and user experience need to be for these systems are just going to keep getting better. And, and we're going to see the same trajectory that we've seen on the sort of consumer and commercial internet side, you know, pick your industry. All of those systems have been improved by with designers having a seat at the table. I'm just curious, you mentioned design and user experience a few different times there. Do you see them as being two different things? Oh, this is, yeah, this is like the, the endless debate. I feel like I was just having a conversation on Twitter with somebody about like the difference between design and user experience and user interfaces. And if you're a user experience designer, does that mean you also design user interfaces? And if you're only a user interface designer, are you also a user experience designer? And I, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right argument. I think I see design as like the whole of of everything. Like I consider myself a designer. There are a multitude of practices underneath designer. I think like a designer could be a like a pure art illustrator. I I would call architects designers. Um, I, I think like industrial designers. There's there sort of runs the gamut. User experience for me is the entire end-to-end workflow of engaging with a product. And that oftentimes is not necessarily the the way the the buttons look or the way the map looks or the way the interface looks. It's the process by which a user gets through the system. Like what are the steps that they have to take to get there? What is the language that you're using in the system? What words did you pick to describe different things? What icons did you choose to represent particular things within the interface. And it even goes even further than that. Like, what is it like to, to engage with your company? So if you're selling geospatial data and you have to like send an email to a salesperson and then sort of like jump through a bunch of hoops to get any information on a data product, well, that's part of the user experience too. That's like the early, early interactions. And oftentimes, at Element 84, at my day job, like when I'm looking at the user experience, like I'm not only focused on the UX of the products that we're developing or the, the tools that we're building for customers. I'm looking at the user experience of the company itself. Like what is it like to interact with Element 84 on social media? What is it like to interact with Element 84 when you're engaging as a new customer? Like is the contracting goofy or is the is it really hard to get a response from someone? You know, does the person you had to deal with from a project management standpoint, like, are they treating you well? So it, it, there's like, it runs the gamut. And so specifically for geospatial and earth observation stuff, the user experience sort of starts at the, possibly at the engagement with the organization that is brokering the data. So like, what's what's the UX of, of you know going to NASA for Earth observation data starts pretty early on in the cycle, and our user interfaces are only one tiny part of that overall experience. Oftentimes, I think of what you're talking about is the promise. Like, what well, what is the promise here? When I interact with a company, when I interact with a piece of software, what's the promise that that, that is made, and is the promise kept throughout the interaction? Yeah, that's exactly right, and. Part of that promise is that you've, you're setting some level of expectation. And so you need to be careful. It's easy to talk about a particular 
feature process, whatever, and set that high expectation. But then you've got to deliver on that throughout the entire user experience of that individual interacting with your system. And that system could just be a, a little piece of software or a website or an entire company. And I think keeping that promise is important. And I think when you get into complex systems, particularly in earth science, it is very hard to keep that promise all the way through. And I, I think you may, that is probably hitting on a, a key frustration is there are so many places in that process where you can sort of lose your promise a bit there. And it's, it's, it's really important to, to, to sort of be vigilant about, about that going through. And that's the hardest part of the job. Making the interface look good, honestly, is, is the easy part. Like the polish on the user interface is the easy part. The really, really hard problems that we have to tackle, I think you said it perfectly, is really how do we keep that promise from initial interaction all the way through? I've, I've got this answer to this question that I've had. I feel like we've covered a lot of this already during the conversation, but when we look out into the future, if you had to sum up things into some, some bullet points, what do you think we, we can expect from, from user interfaces when we think about geospatial? First and foremost, there's going to be kind of a, a layering over geospatial. I think we're going to worry less and less about the, the sensor technology, the, the resolution, um, all the sort of like the tech specs of the geospatial data itself. I think we're going to get to a point where we're not going to have to worry about the low-level Earth observation data. So there's going to be a, a pretty, pretty good obfuscation of that. I think you're going to get to a point where, and I guess this is sort of piggybacking on that, you're going to get transparent subsetting and reprojection. You're not going to have to deal with the, the sort of lower-level issues of the data. We're going to be moving away from that. that. That's just going to be like having to understand the, the intricacies of SMS messaging or any of the like HTTP layers on the web. I think we're going to move completely away from that. I really think we're, we're going to be done with downloading data I, I, for a couple of reasons. I think the data sets are going to be enormous, like terabytes, petabytes, huge, huge data sets. It's not going to make sense to pull that down over, over even your, your, your best gigabit Ethernet pipe. So everything is going to be an API layer. Everything is likely going to be sitting with major cloud providers. And you could have a, a whole other discussion on how you feel about the centralization of the cloud providers. That's sort of like beyond the topic of this conversation. But I, I think that's where we're headed, at least from what I can see. And then I also think, particularly on the earth science side, you're going to get into these like low code or no code science tools. And so there's a lot of really great projects going on right now. Um, Pangeo is one of them where they're sort of building a lot of standardized Python tool sets and libraries to sort of deal with Earth observation and geospatial data at a sort of code level. And those code libraries are getting better. So like now we don't have to write this low level code anymore. Now we can write this higher level elegant Python to do some of the data processing. And I think as we move into the future, we're going to even be I think we're even going to get a step above that. We're going to go to the point where like I could be a data scientist or I could be an earth scientist and not have to, you know, deal with spinning up AWS instances or making sure I have a particular Python library. And I, we're not there yet, but like if I'm looking at 10, 20 years into the future, yeah, I think the low code, no code science tools is going to be a big step there. Do you think the community is going to push for this or do you think the pull is going to come from, from outside of the geospatial community? 
I guess what I'm getting at, do, do you think scientists and, and geospatial users are wanting this today, now, this is going to make their lives easier? Or do you think that it's going to be people from outside the community say, we would love to use that, but you're going to have to do these five things first? I don't think we're quite there yet. I think the pull right now is give me better code tools, like give me better Python libraries, make this whole spinning up cloud instances go away, like get, get me out of that. And, and I think we're moving in the right direction with things like Jupyter Notebooks and Jupyter Hub. That's sort of standardizing and making it much easier to sort of do data processing at scale in the cloud. And so I, I, I think we're getting there. And I think we are answering the call to improved sort of developer tools. I, I think we're right there. I do think that the push is going to come from the other end, though. I, I think we're going to, I, I mean, a good example of this, like the future scientists, like think people that are maybe in high school now or like middle school now that in 15 years are going to be, they're going to be like taking over desks at NASA and NOAA and USGS. And they're going to have grown up on sort of low code, no code tools. They're going to have expectations that the science tools are as easy to use or of a similar capacity as what they've seen in other parts of their sort of digital online life. And so I think the push is going to come from that direction. But like I said before, it's, it's, a, it's a step. So in order to get the low code or no code science tools, well, first you've got to have really great coding tools. Like the, the developer experience has to be really, really good. And then the developers can stop worrying about the lower level code. And then they can start thinking about, huh, how can I write this piece of software where my scientist doesn't really have to do any coding at all? And they can just like be an expert at land use or they can be an ex they can be an expert oceanographer without also having to be a software engineer Python expert. And I, I think the push is going to come from the, you know, in, in my case, I, I keep using the science community as sort of my, my foundation here, just because that's, that's sort of where I live. But yeah, you, you could think of other commercial interests full of people that don't have any desire to, to, do, to do code, they're going to be pushing for this. And, and you see this in commercial web products, like website builders and even like low code or no code tools for building mobile apps and all sorts of complex web interfaces. We're getting to the point now where the infrastructure for writing code on the web has gotten so good. We are like thinking at one level higher now. We're, we're able to think about how we can build tools that that'll grant that same power to an end user that the developer has without them having to be a software developer. Hey Jeff, I think this is a really, really great place to round off the conversation. And I just want to say thanks. I want to say thank you very much for, for walking us through this. I mean, I've never talked to a designer before on the podcast. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's opened my eyes to, to a lot of things. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. But before I let you go, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to ask more questions, about any of the things we've talked about today, where, where can they go to do that? Uh, yeah, the best place to get in touch with me is probably uh, Twitter. They can get me at jciardo, so first initial, last name on Twitter, or you can also find me at Element84, which is our, our company's handle. Both of those places are great. DMs are open, as they say. And yeah, that's, that's probably the best place to find me. Thanks very much, Jeff. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Jeff Seattle. 
from Element84. If you want to connect with Jeff, I'll put a few useful links in the show notes of this podcast episode to make it a little bit easier for you. That's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I'll be back again next week. I really hope that you'll take the time to join me then. As always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You can catch me at Mapscaping on Twitter. If email is your thing, if you go along to mapscaping.com, you can join the email list or you're more than welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. There'll be links to all of those things in the show notes. So yeah, just have a look there. And if you feel like reaching out, I would love to hear from you. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Bye.